Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith with you today on a day when we got another great show coming up for you. First up, we're going to talk about Metro Vancouver property taxes and so many big tax hikes throughout Metro Vancouver and individual municipalities. Look at Vancouver. It was like a 7% tax hike in, in property taxes. Are you kidding me? Who can afford to pay this stuff now? The economy is in a meltdown. Take a look at what other levels of government have done to help people. The provincial government has rolled out billions of dollars of programs and tax deferrals with probably more to come. Some people think they haven't done enough. The federal government, they have got the taps wide open. They're spending billions, multiple billions and billions of dollars to help people and businesses stay afloat. What is the missing piece of the puzzle here? I'll tell you what it is. It's the other level of government. What is going on with municipal governments with these property tax increases that nobody can afford to pay now what are they going to do to help people check out what they tried to do in surrey as i spoke to has been speaking to surrey city councilor linda annas she actually put forward a motion at surrey city hall this week to defer local property taxes just say okay you don't have to pay them for a while at least at least defer the collection date she got shot down by Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, said she was out of order. He said the, the city can't do this. They're required by provincial law to collect these taxes. Really? Really? You got you to get blood out of a stone right now? What are other municipalities doing about this? Well, let me tell you right now. Break a little news for you. The city of Port Coquitlam, last night, in a closed-door meeting, has voted to cancel this year's property tax increase. It will now be 0%. Other municipalities should be doing the same thing. Forget about hiking taxes right now when we're in a a pandemic and a recession. Do what POCO was doing, 0%. That's more like it. Let's check in with Porco Quitla, Mayor Brad West now. Mayor, Mayor West, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, tell me what you guys have done here. Uh, so as you said, we have uh, voted to reduce our property tax increase this year to zero. And we've also voted to defer the uh, property tax and utility payments to September 2nd. So this is an action that the city is able to take that we think is going to be uh, well received by our residents. And it's a way that the city can support them during this time. We've had thousands of people in our city who've lost their job. We've had hundreds of businesses in Port Coquitlam who've had to close their doors. Uh, And everyone in our community is having to tighten their belt right now and make really responsible financial decisions. And the the city cannot be uh, immune from that. The the city has to follow suit. And so uh, we provided direction to our staff early on at the outbreak to find whatever ways possible to support our residents during this time. And I'm really pleased that we're able to show this leadership and take this action and reduce property tax increase to zero and defer payment to September 2nd. Okay, let's be real clear about what you're doing here. You're not saying that you are eliminating local property taxes. You're just canceling this year's scheduled increase. So people will still have to pay the old rate. Right. right, but you're saying they won't have to remit until September. What was what was the original deadline to pay? So the original deadline was July 1st, uh, and that yeah. would be the same across the province. Um, we have the ability to extend uh, the deadline, and we've done so for both property taxes and utility payments to September 2nd to give people um, more time uh, to adjust, uh, more time to plan. Um, July 1st is coming 
more quickly than we think, and people need to be able to know what is coming at them. What, what if people uh, can't? What if people can't pay in September? So what we've said is that we're going to monitor uh, the situation very closely, and if we have to take further action, we we will. We've already done that, in fact, with our utility payments, because originally, Mike, when this all happened, uh, we extended the utility payment uh, deadline because that originally was going to be March 31st. We ex- extended that. Uh, that's the normal deadline for utility payments in municipalities. We extended that already once to May 1st, okay. and we said if we need to take further action, we will, and we have uh, today or last evening, we've extended it to September 2nd. So the same okay. thing holds true for what we've done with property taxes. If we need to take additional action, that's what we'll do. Speaking to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, okay, so this year's property tax increase in POCO will be 0%. As, as you mentioned now, I remember that you guys were already holding the line pretty closely on property tax increase. I think it was among, if not the lowest increase in, in Metro. What it was like, wasn't it 0.42%? Yeah, our, our, originally our planned property tax increase was 0.48%, Four, which, eight. Was all, okay. yeah, which was already, uh, I believe, the, the lowest in, in the region, if not the province. Right. So what, uh, would you, and, what would you say to someone that, okay, the increase was supposed to be 0.48%, small increase, and now it's going to yeah. be 0% that, well, big deal. Like, you know, this is, is well, what is this, a symbolic gesture? Yeah. Like, it's not like you're giving up a whole lot of money, really, right? I mean, it's easy to dismiss anything. It's not a big deal. But I, I agree, we're in a position to be able to do this because we made the responsible financial decisions early on. And so, you know, we've done the hard work. This uh, financial rigor and responsible decision-making is nothing new to us, and it's because uh, we've already put in that work to get the property taxes uh, you know, down to 0.48% yeah. that we're able to take the additional step to, to go to zero. Um, you know, some people might dismiss that, but it's a, a heck of a lot better than paying 3 4 5 6 or 7%. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're paying, what, what was the increase in Vancouver? I believe it was in the 7% range. 7%. Let, speaking to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, let me ask you, how are you guys able to do this? Because as I mentioned off the top in the city of Surrey, uh, Surrey City Councilor Linda Annis was trying to get a property tax deferment, and she was ruled out of order by Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. He said, "You guys, they're not allowed to defer taxes. Here, But you guys are deferring taxes. What's going on? What are the rules? Well, I can't speak for Mayor McCallum or, or Surrey and the information that they're operating on, but uh, I have full confidence that we're able to take this action. Uh, our, our staff have been very diligent in in making sure that everything that we do is in line with uh, all of the rules. Um, we're able to do this because we're going to reduce uh, non-essential spending. We're going to put a hold on ex- external hiring except for critical positions. Uh, we have uh, financial reserves that we're able to call upon. And it's really a, a matter of having the appropriate cash flow to be able to meet the bills that the city has to pay. So when the city, uh, when the city does their budget and when the city requires a certain amount of money, you know, not every bill comes at the same time. So it's not one day you, you know, you pay the whatever, maybe $100 million that's in your budget. It's, yeah. it's a question of balancing like any other business has to do. And so <clears throat> we feel confident that we're in the position um, because of our reserve levels, uh, because of the responsible financial decisions we made prior, uh, and because of the reductions that we're going to to make and the belt tightening that the city is going to do, um, that we're in a in a uh, strong position to be able to offer this relief to our our residents and okay. confident that we have the ability to do it. That you know we're not going to be stopped by the province or a senior level of government to say no, you can't do that. Well, I think what the province should be doing is facilitating property tax relief across the board for everybody, never mind just the people in Port Coquitlam. I, I think it's great that you're you're bringing in a 0% property tax increase. That's great. Uh, but I think other cities should be doing the same thing. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, you guys should be giving property tax relief to people who are suffering through this thing. City of Vancouver, same thing. Every municipality. And if it takes the provincial government to step in, 
I think this is one of the missing pieces of the puzzle. People are getting hammered with these property tax hikes. Let me play this for you, Mayor West, and get your reaction to it. Yesterday, I spoke to uh, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, and he talked about this on the show. He's calling on the province to step in to, to reduce property taxes. Have a listen. What we know is people are going home and they're worried sick about their jobs. And it's not just uh, employees. It's the people who you know run the mom-and-pop operation are self-employed. They've got rent obligations, they've got property tax obligations, and they're looking for some answers from John Horgan. What's happening with their property taxes? Can they defer them? Do they have to pay them? Are they going to get into trouble for it? Are they going to go into receivership because they can't afford to pay their rent? Okay, you agree with them? You think the province should step in here? Well, I, I do think that there should be uniform action across the entire province, and I can yeah. tell you that I know municipalities have been speaking to the provincial government, and this is something that is being worked on at the province to municipal level. And, and there's a variety of, of different ways that people may try to approach this. There's the property tax deferment program uh, that is already in place that cities have been lobbying to have expanded. Uh, so there are a, a number of different ways that this may be approached. From my perspective, Port Coquitlam was in a position where we were able to yeah. do something, and so we did it. Okay. Um, I understand different people will be in different situations, uh, but we have residents in our community who are uh, who are asking about this, who are concerned, businesses who are concerned. Right. And you know, if you're in a position to take leadership, uh, to demonstrate leadership, and to deliver something for your community, I think you should. And that's okay. what we've done. And you know, we'll. The, I'm sure the discussions at the provincial level are going to continue, and I'm I'm hopeful that we can do this across the board. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's uh, check in with Keith Baldry now, Global News Bureau Chief at the Legislature. Time for Baldry's Beat, as we call it here on the show. Hey, Keith. Morning, Smitty. Let's talk about the breaking news here. We just broke here at the top of the hour here on mm-hmm. the show, and that is the city of Port Coquitlam rolling back this year's property tax increase, deferring the payment when people have to pay their taxes. Now, some people might think like, oh, big whoop. I mean, this is just one small community. It's one small kind of gesture. But here's the point I think that's important. I think they should be doing this in every community. Okay, like people can't pay these property tax, like 7% property tax increase in Vancouver. No. How are people supposed to pay this? Yeah, no, Poco Mayor Brad West, again, has his finger on the pulse of where the public's at. He's very, his political savviness is quite uh, interesting. Uh, and it has to be <laughs> yeah. commended. Uh, no, right now, people are hurting. And for many people, it's a cash flow problem. You know, yeah, you right. can't make these payments right now because your revenue stream is, is uh, either hemorrhaged or disappeared altogether. So you've got to defer some payments. And yeah. and good on uh, whether it's, uh, you know, s- certain financial institutions are relaxing the, the pressure. And good for Mayor Brad West. This is what people are looking for. You have to defer... Uh, as many payments as you can right now. People are looking to governments at all levels for extreme help, and that's why governments have to step up. Don't worry about running deficits and and, and all the budgets are all the budgets are They're shot anyway. Who no. cares? Now, now municipalities have to be careful. You don't want to drift into insolvency. That's that's another issue. But uh, you look well, at, every day. Justin Trudeau stands in front of those cameras outside Rideau Cottage. Uh, and announces an expanding benefit for people every every day. It, it doesn't get smaller; it gets bigger because yeah. that's what people need, and that's what people. It's are like a fire for. hose; it's just yeah. wide open every day. So here's the thing about Poco, by the way: it's across the board for this tax rollback. So it's commercial properties, residential properties, also utilities. Okay, that yeah. those p- payments are deferred. And they did that in an in-camera meeting last night in Poco. And I think that's a good thing. Now, check out what's going on in the city of Surrey. I just spoke to Linda Annis, Surrey City Councilor. She tried to defer. She moved a motion. Let's defer property taxes in Surrey. The mayor ruled her out of order. So you're not allowed to do it because there's a provincial emergency. Does this guy even know what he's talking about? I see nothing in the Emergency Programs Act that says a municipality can't defer uh, taxes. Poco just did it last night. I think uh, Kelowna, I think, also um, did some action on that. As yeah. well, so no, I, I've again. I went through the Emergency Programs Act uh, after I heard Doug McCallum say that. I see no no specific bar for a municipality to take that kind do of you, action. Do you think the province has got to step in here? Because you know, by law, municipalities, I believe, they're not allowed to run a deficit. No, 
right? No. So, I mean, does the province have to step in here with well, some Well, you know, the province just, and nobody's even said boo about the province suddenly running a $5 billion deficit. I mean, I, right now, I don't think yeah. people care about deficits. Uh, I expect the Horgan government to actually run a much bigger deficit than $5 billion because I think in the fall they're going to come back with another aid package because that's what people are looking for right now. They're in desperate situation. You've got 25% unemployment. You've got more than 3 million people applying for that emergency response, emergency benefit at the federal level. Uh, this is a dire situation, and they're looking to the governments for help, not for belt-tightening measures. So look for look for deficits at the provincial level and the federal level just to balloon beyond all belief uh, from what we this, thought the world was like six months ago. Not even right-wing politicians nope. care about deficit anymore. Like even Andrew Scheer. I had Andrew Scheer on the radio show just the other day, and yep. he was like, spend more. Like, you yeah. know, they, they're not doing... Spend more and spend spend quicker. Open the fire hydrants even wider. And I'm like, well, didn't you campaign on a balanced budget platform? No, no, no. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't even matter if you're like a conservative politician. It's nope. like, just turn the taps wide open. No, and that's where Doug McCallum and others who want to, you know, stick to the... Uh, the bottom line has to be respected is just out of step with what the public looking for. The public, the governments are now seen not as political party governments. They're seen as literally a lifeline for people, benefactors. They're looking to the government. It doesn't matter what party's in power right now. They're looking to the government literally for giving, putting them on, you know, getting them off life support onto a financial footing that they can protect their family. Okay, I think there's going to be pressure now on the John Horgan government and all municipal uh, municipal councils across BC and Metro Vancouver as well to, to bring in property tax relief. So we'll sure. see what happens there. Um, let's talk a, a bit about this uh, case of this 47-year-old man who died at home in Richmond after testing positive for, for COVID-19. And you broke some key elements on this on the Global News Hour last night, Keith. And I, I encourage you, by the way, in the Vancouver Sun... Uh, Gordon McIntyre got a piece. Yeah, this is an extraordinary story by Gordon McIntyre, which I tweeted out. So you give me a follow on Twitter, you'll find the link there. And he's got a, a very detailed description of this man. Warlito Valdez was his mm -hmm. name. He is 47 years old. I'm, I'm just reading Gord's story here. He had a wife. He had a four-year-old daughter. He was 47. He died sometime Saturday night or Sunday morning as he self-isolated on the top floor of his three-story Richmond townhouse. His, his wife found her husband unresponsive, and she quotes him, she quotes her saying, I was running upstairs saying, please, Lord, please, Lord. I shouted, I screamed, don't leave me. I mean, this is absolutely a heartbreaking case, but here, here's the thing. The guy tests positive. Mm -hmm. He's not. He doesn't go to the hospital, though. He dies at home, and he's also working with these group homes that you talked about last night. Let's, let's get into this. Yeah, there, so there's a couple elements here that um, need exploring. First of all, there's going to be a, there's a coroner's investigation. There's also another investigation that's going to be ordered by Health Minister Adrian Dix, or it kicks in automatically, because there was health. He, he was in contact with the healthcare system, both through nurses and paramedics. After he tested positive. After he tested but positive. But they didn't put him in the hospital. They said, you're not sick enough to be in the hospital. And that's one of the questions this investigation is going to be looking at. Why The hospitals right now are wide open. It's not like there's a bed shortage. In fact, there's more than 4,200 open beds, uh, acute care beds in the hospital system. So there was a, there's lots there, of room. There's lots of room. Uh, the question is, why wasn't he admitted to hospital? Now, that's not second-guessing anything here. Who knows how this virus uh, behaves in certain people? I well, mean, in hindsight, he obviously should have been in hospital because he died. Well, but... But, but look, he. I guess the rule in the hospital is if you're not sick enough, you don't go in the hospital. If you're, if you've just had mild. Now they're saying he just had mild symptoms. He just had a fever. And, and so the question is, do you do you go from having a temperature of say 99 degrees and then suddenly you're at 106, which is you know critical, yeah. and that could have been the case here. So they're going to be looking at exactly his his the interventions with him from healthcare personnel why he wasn't admitted to hospital right. the other one that's ongoing now and this is just beginning he worked in a in the Richmond Society for Community Living which is a, a, a facility that uh, its clients include young adults with uh, mentally challenged uh, developmentally yeah. challenged yeah so they have uh, a problem with social di distancing, following the, the rules on this. And now, Bonnie Henry, when I asked Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday, yesterday's briefing about this, she acknowledged we're, they're now looking at group homes with young adults with developmental challenges, uh, oh. at what she referred to as clusters. And so these people also have underlying health 
issues, which makes them more vulnerable to this virus. So this is a very serious situation. Dr. Senior Health Officials yesterday say they're they're quite worried about this, that they're now uh, looking at group homes of young adults with these issues, and this virus can play a uh, bigger role there than they uh, in elsewhere. It's it's actually the equivalent of long-term care homes in terms of an issue. This is a tragic case. I mean, here's this guy. He's married. He's got a young daughter. Um, He's only 47 years old. And he, and he works with developmentally disabled people, which yeah. I, I just compounds the tragedy of it, I think. Now, how many – did this guy work at m- multiple group homes? Well, Do we know? I think he only worked at that facility, but okay. people come there uh, for daycare pro- – for care programs, uh, camp programs, and then they go back to their group homes. And that's where Dr. Bonnie Henry that's came the concern. Where, where now they're investigating clusters of okay. these cases. Let's have a little listen here to Dr. Bonnie Henry Keith. Here she is talking yesterday about this case. So I know there are a number of small clusters of cases in uh, in in some of the group homes, and so these are smaller group homes um, in the in the area. And yes, that um, Vancouver Coastal has been working with those particular homes um, to ensure that uh, transmission is stopped as much as possible, and to test people who are um, who have been exposed, and to facilitate people isolating who have been exposed. Have, have the, has the province disclosed where these group homes are located? No, uh, and I don't think they will until we get a. Why not though? A, I mean, they tell us they tell us which uh, they tell us which care homes, senior citizens, nursing yeah, well, homes are. What I've noticed is that the information flow is constantly evolving. Uh, we learned about Lynn Valley and Harrow Park and a couple other care homes, and that's it. We haven't learned about any other ones. I mean, Dufferin Place, I think in. Coquitlam, there was another one. I think we've only learned about the identities of four or five care homes, and they've stopped identifying the care homes. Uh, and it'll be interesting whether they, they identify any of these. I, I kind of doubt they're going to de- identify group homes. I mean, these are literally houses on a street, and uh, I think one of the issues is privacy. They don't want people showing up and, and suddenly trying to interview some of these uh, some of these people. So I don't anticipate much uh, specific information on that, but I do think uh, Dr. Henry's probably going to provide more information on that, that front today. Before we go to some calls, Keith, uh, one of the themes we heard from the government yesterday was with religious celebrations this weekend, Passover, Easter, uh, the government saying do not gather together, celebrate virtually. Here is Bonnie Henry on that. So as we're all aware, there are a number of, of important religious celebrations that are coming up in the in the coming weeks, starting tomorrow, really, and in the coming days. And many of us, mi- millions around the world of many faiths, will be celebrating these major religious holidays. And we'll be celebrating in um, collectively around the world in ways we've never done before in many cases. Our faith leaders, and we had a call with a with a number of faith leaders from across BC again this morning, um, are also community leaders and people that we look to for guidance at these times when we're in crises, but also when uh, we have times of these religious celebrations. And I am so happy to see and have been so impressed by how much they have shown through their actions that we can still celebrate and care for those around us in virtual ways. Okay, uh, most major religions, I think, are going to uh, observe this and follow the directions. I hope, but hope I, so. I wonder if some, maybe some smaller churches might say might still get together. I, I hope so. Um, hopefully, again, everybody should uh, heed Dr. Bonnie Henry's advice. It's yeah. not just advice; these are directives that she's. Yeah. Is, you know, go back to what happened a couple of weeks ago in Newfoundland, where there were two giant funerals that people went to, and literally more than 50 people became quite sick with this with this virus as a result of attending those those indoor gatherings where you have uh, shared meals uh, and such. So no, heed Dr. Bonnie Henry's advice and, and directive this. Yeah. Again, it's not advice, it's a directive. Do not gather uh, in crowds, uh, particularly indoors. Celebrate online. Celebrate, Celebrate online virtually. Or virtually or yeah. over the phone. Don't, yeah. uh, don't gather together. Okay, real quickly, there's a news conference coming up this afternoon, Premier John Horgan at 1.15. Really quickly, what do you anticipate there? Uh, I think it's going to be something on on travelers, people yeah. who travel. Yeah. Um, again, uh, Adrian Dick's health minister, has been quite uh, vocal about his uh, insistence that uh, the feds do more on uh, on uh, making sure people self-isolate. And I think, uh, but again, airports are federal jurisdiction. We'll see if the federal government plays a role today as well. Let's go to the phone lines. Richard, hi. Um, congratulations, Mike, on your new show. And uh, uh, in the Rafe Mayor tradition, I hope you keep on holding politicians' feet to their fire. 
But anyways, listen, I'd like to talk about um, this whole thing about Brad West. I think he's he's a refreshing breath of politics in this country, and I hope that he continues on politically up the scale. But, you know, here I live in the socialist state of Vancouver, and I think it's more than actually a 7% property increase. And the point I'm trying to make here is that in Vancouver, what there's all these political vanity projects that are going on right now, the tearing down of the viaducts, also the the changing over the Granville Street Bridge to a pedestrian bike path and all these things to make the left of center politicians look good in this city. And what we should be doing is it should be an apolitical response, like a New Deal kind of thing to get people out of this mess. And I just don't see I see left of center politics in Vancouver and their vanity projects, again, superseding what really needs to okay. be done in the city. All right, Richard, thank you for the call. Well, I mean... If you take a look at the spending patterns of municipal governments, a lot of municipal governments have grown. The spending has grown. The taxes have grown. Um, yep. But the pressure is on now to, to roll this stuff back, roll these tax hikes back. Yeah, no, it's uh, the caller mentioned New Deal. And I think that's yeah. what you're going to have to see in this country uh, right across the board is a New Deal type of approach where you've got to get uh, stimulus spending. And he may criticize uh, bike paths and things like that, but that's a form of infrastructure. And I think one way to get out of this is for everybody to put people to work uh, by spending programs and building things, and whether it's a bike path or a bridge or, or whatever. People need to work, need to, and you need to have that economic stimulus, but you also have to ease the, the financial burden on people. And that means deferring payments, whether it's taxes yeah. or anything else. Right. Just like Port Coquitlam did last night. It's, it, you, they are allowed to do this. Hey. Because they showed last night that they can do it. So, Doug McCallum, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're smoking. But when you say that you can't do this because there's a provincial emergency, you can't defer no, property show, taxes, yes, you can. Show me the, the, yes, the you work can. there, Doug. Yeah. I've said from the get-go, keep an eye on Brad West of Poco. He's a political up-and-comer. Corey on the open line. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, I just got to say we got to quit with all the blanket statements. I mean... Um, if you're lucky enough to still be working, well, then you should pay your property taxes. Like, we can't just bankrupt everything. If there's a million people in uh, Vancouver working right now and 50% of them are laid off, well, that's 500,000 people that are still working. They should absolutely well, what pay if you can't? What if you're not working? What if you're not working and you can't afford to pay a 7% property tax increase? Well, then maybe they should tie it to the people that have applied for the financial assistance from the government or something. We just can't do a blanket thing and bankrupt all no, the municipalities. Uh, Keith. That's a fair comment. I mean, you know, the caller's right. I mean, if uh, I'm working, you're working, we can still pay our taxes. But I look at the 25% of the people out there, at least 25%, who suddenly are out of work, or the re- the, the businesses the ch- that are, are shuttered right now and hope to come back. They cannot pay a th- thousands of dollars a month as well, that's they wait why, for the economy. Well, to that's return. why you just do a deferral then, because, yeah. I mean, if you're going to means test it, that gets really difficult and bureaucratic and, and complicated. Well, but if, the, if you the, just, do a, just do a deferral. The B.C. government's announced a deferral for the B.C. hydro payments, but right. John Horgan, when he announced this, he said, look, if you, don't, if, you, if you can afford to pay your hydro bill, please pay it, because yeah. that will allow us to extend this even longer. So, yeah, if you can pay your taxes, pay it. But if you can't, the government needs to ha- come to your aid. Keith, thanks for coming in. Talk to you tomorrow. That's Keith Baldry. Baldry's Beat, we call it here. He's the Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Let's talk about a disrupted school year now. You got kids in the public school system like I do? Listen up, and let's talk about the rollout of online learning now throughout the province. The schools are shut down. Kids are not going to school. You got kids at home. You know that darn well. Are your kids up and running on online learning here as we transition to a virtual education system here? The provincial government taking some heat here for the delay in getting this up and running. Have a listen to this. I spoke earlier this week to the leader of the opposition here, Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson, zeroing in on the government on the online education. Here is Wilkinson. we got a big problem in British Columbia, and we want to know where the education minister is. March 23rd, Alberta, Ontario, went back to school, and they uh, dressed up their online learning by March the 30th. Mike, that's over a week ago. They were back on full track. Kamloops School Board is doing a good job with online learning and assignments going out to kids every day, and they're spending the mornings at the at the kitchen table getting their schoolwork done. That's working well in Kamloops, but nothing is happening in most school boards around the province. Okay, well, I wouldn't say nothing is happening. Um, 
parents are getting information from teachers and from principals, but I think there might be a lot of parents out there who are wondering why their kids are not getting a more fuller kind of online education at this point. Of course, we're in uncharted territory, but still, uh, are we behind other provinces? Let's talk about this now with my guest, Stephanie Higginson. She is the president of the BC School Trustees Association. Stephanie, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me this morning, Mike. What is the situation with online learning across the province from your perspective, and do you think it's being uh, ramped up too slowly? Well, Mike, I think we need to back that up a little bit. I keep hearing this constant reference out there to online learning, but this is really, you know, the minister was clear on March 17th that it's a suspension of face-to-face in-class learning, and it's really important for us to remember that this isn't just online. We have many families across the province for various reasons who have limited access to connectivity or, you know, limited availability to just do online learning. So this is really about us creating an entire public education system that meets the needs of, you know, the really diverse needs of the students across this province. So it's not just going to be online. Right. I mean, some other, I've heard that some other kids might be coming into the schools. Like if you're the, uh, uh, special needs kid or maybe you're the child of a, a frontline healthcare worker, that there might be an opportunity for you, for your kid to actually go into a physical school. Do you know what's going on with that? So, you know, it was, it was very, made very clear to us from public health that we need to make sure that our, the essential support frontline workers can still report to work. And if uh, those folks have children at home, then there's a chance that they may not be able to report to work. So the education system is really stepping forward to do its part to support our essential support workers right now. And, yeah. and we're doing that by opening schools to a very limited amount of students who meet a very specific need of um, um, criteria of, su- of support workers that we need right now to keep our health care system running at 100%. And we're doing so to, you know, in safe and healthy ways for the students right. and the families and the employees who will be in those buildings. Okay, I think for most parents, though, if they've got kids in the system and their kids are at home, they want to see their kids in front of a computer and at least learning at home. And, and I take your point that not every family has got uh, the connectivity or the computer resources to to do that, but I think a, a lot of families do have a PC or a laptop or something at home that a kid can use online. Are are we getting this up and running quick enough from your perspective? Well, I'm a parent of two school-aged children, so I share some of those concerns that you mentioned. I mean, I would prefer that my child not be in front of a computer all day because I don't think that's what happens at school, but I know we're trying to do this carefully and thoughtfully. So uh, I think that we are working very, very quickly. I have been, um, you know, so impressed with the uh, amount of coordination that is happening across this sector to make this happen. So I think that for BC, just simply switching to online learning uh, would be, uh, you know, it would create that equity gap would widen between the students who have that type of access and the students who don't. So I know in my home what happened last last week was that our our, my, my children's teachers called. They found out. They said, do you have the ability for the children to be online? Do you have connectivity? You know, it's not just about people having connectivity to their house or having one computer. You've got two parents home right now often in a lot of households working from one or two computers. So even if there is a computer at home, is this helpful to just switch kids onto online? So what I found last week was teachers calling, reaching out, making those important emotional connections with my children. My youngest is only in grade three, and he really misses his classmates and was so happy to hear from his teacher. So, and, I, and what I've seen in my house this week is, you know, schedules being rolled out, lots of support from the teacher to help. So uh, I would be disappointed if all we did was flick a switch and throw parents online, because I think that that would not be what meets the needs of all of British Columbia's uh, public education. But are, but are we running behind other provinces. I mean, you heard the Liberal leader there say that uh, on March 23rd, they were up and running with online learning in Alberta and Ontario. Is that true? I mean, are we running behind these other provinces? Yeah, I was a 
a little bit caught off guard by the political criticism yesterday. It, it's, it felt to me that it wasn't reflective of the efforts that are being made. And, and some things that, that, you know, we need to remember is that we're not just trying to go online. And so that's important. Yeah. Also, Alberta and Ontario had, um, you know, their March breaks ended before ours. And right. the reference that the uh, leader of the opposition gave yesterday in regards to Kamloops is that there were three, three, three or four school districts across the province whose March breaks were earlier. So Kamloops does have the week, they have a week head start. Uh, They've been doing this for longer. So I would expect that that type of learning that he's referencing in Kamloops is going to be happening uh, at a different pace, but in the same way across the province starting this week. Let me ask you about the, uh, the the BC Teachers Federation. You're a former teacher yourself, right? Yes, never in BC though, only in Ontario. Okay. The BC Teachers Federation has got kind of a go slow approach to this. And and I just noted on on Twitter that I had an exchange with Terry Mooring, who is the president of the BC Teachers Federation, and just noted that even just in a in a tweet this week, um, she was saying like, look, there's no rush. Hashtag no rush was what she was talking. It's like, okay, there's no rush to get this up and running quickly. We're in it. We're in uncharted territory. Take your time. Is there no rush, really? Like, I'm just wondering for parents out there who are wondering what, what's going on with their kids. Is there no rush? And why is there no rush to get kids learning again? Well, I think I interpret that statement a little bit differently than you, because what we want to make sure is that we're doing this, uh, you know, first and foremost, we want to ensure a healthy and safe environment for students and families. So let's say that a, uh, a teacher needs to actually have some kind of paper um, paper packages they hand out to students. We can't have, you know, students stampeding into schools. We need to be slow and thoughtful and careful about how we do that. So what I interpret from that no rush is let's be thoughtful and careful about how we move forward with this to ensure health and safety of all of our students, families, and employees. Okay, I'm just looking at her tweet from yesterday, and she says, let's all be patient with each other. There is no rush we're in it for the long haul. I spoke to Terry Mooring a few days ago on the show. Greg, if you got that Terry Mooring clip, let's listen to that. There is absolutely no rush. No student is going to be disadvantaged um, by us rolling this out by mid-April. That's very, uh, you know, reasonable. Okay, yeah, there she is saying that there's no rush. Um, so you're, as, you're a parent in, with mm-hmm. kids in the system, and you agree with that, right? There's no rush. Take your time. What I agree with is making sure that the teachers, um, you know, as a parent, what I want to make sure is that, and, and what I've been really impressed with is the way that my children's teachers have reached out to make that connection and are designing programs that meet the needs of what our family has. We have a parent now working full-time from home who wasn't before. Uh, you know, we're fortunate that my, my husband's work has not been interrupted yet, so he's still leaving the house. So how much time do I have while working? And so what I, what I think I heard from Terry there is what I'm seeing happening, which is slowly rolling out finding the groove that our family needs in order to operate in this sort of new reality that we're in. And, and I understand right. that some parents have the ability to go quicker, and I, I think that those, their teachers probably heard that from those parents, that they would like more support on quicker, and I would expect that they're probably responding to them as needed. But, you know, there is no, uh, there's no playbook here, <laughs> so we're That's doing true. this the best we can. <laughs> and I have to say I've been very impressed with the incredible amount of effort behind the scenes in order to allow the districts to roll something out that meets the needs of the communities that they serve. Why do we have a Ministry of Education? Why do we have an education minister to say, oh, it's not my problem? Come on, show some leadership. Get out there. The best practice appears to be in Kamloops right now. It's been working for over a week. Get that information out to all the school districts. Deal directly with parents. All right, welcome back. That's Andrew Wilkinson there, the leader of the Liberal Party on yesterday's show, uh, questioning the rollout of online learning here uh, during this pandemic. And as my guest Stephanie Higginson pointed out, yeah, sharply critical there of the B.C. government and the slow rollout here of online learning. And now he did mention Kamloops. And Stephanie, as you mentioned, they had an earlier spring break. So their their spring break ended earlier than a lot of other school districts. Right. So like they had a head start getting going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And and I will say um, 
you know, I do find the statements that there's not leadership at the provincial level actually not at all the experience that I've had. We spent two weeks uh, at the provincial level, you know, pulled together by the Ministry of Education, creating teams of folks uh, across the sector to develop an integrated planning framework, a teaching planning guideline, health and safety protocols, and protocols on caring for children. And this was all ruled out to districts in time for the end of March break. So between March 17th and March 27th, a group of folks came from across the province and uh, the Ministry of Education team themselves and the minister and created all of these guidelines and frameworks in order to help districts roll this out in their own uh, communities. So it's going to look different everywhere, and it should. We have 60 school boards across the province that serve different communities that have unique needs. And so it's not going to look the same everywhere okay let's take some phone calls hi greg hi hi go ahead yeah there's uh i think in every province they have a uh, homeschooling uh, curriculum i know my uh, older sister homeschooled all her children for over a decade and that curriculum is ready and set to go uh, why not tap into that uh, my neighbor for instance is a teacher and he's been out washing his tesla every day and playing catch with his son. I don't see him working, but yet he's fully on the government payroll. So I'm actually quite appalled at the lack of leadership and the timing in this. Okay, what about homeschooling? Stephanie Higginson. Well, the, the ministry has set up a website that does have a link to Open School BC, which is, you know, a, a remote learning uh, resource bank that exists for families that yeah. homeschool or for different types of distant learning. You know, I'm disappointed about the experience Craig's having with his, you know, neighbor who's out there, you know, washing their Tesla. Well, listen, we don't know what the deal is with yeah. his neighbor, right? I just I, want to point that out. Like, Yeah. I think that's not reflective of what I'm seeing and, you know, and hearing from across the province. I know that teachers are, you know, most, like, most of the, I don't think that's a a reflection of the the norm right now. I think teachers are working very hard. I think that, look, I think there's a lot of work that's been going on behind the scenes that people don't know. I I, I do also think, though, that if you're a parent and you got kids in the school system and your kids are bouncing off the walls and driving you nuts that you'd like maybe like to see a, a, a sort of more robust mm-hmm. kind of online curriculum going now and but i but i take your point that it's easy to take pot shots when like you said there's no playbook for that i mean we're, we're all going through the the, the up, upheaval of our lives here so but I, I do think there's a lot of parents out there would like to see something getting going let's go to susan on the open line hey susan hi um, thanks for taking my call, and sure. I'm so glad that you got the show. And I listen to CKNW religiously every morning on my way to work. But my point is, I totally agree with Stephanie. Um, I'm a frontline. I'm in the system. I work for an independent school. And like Kamloops, we went out, Kamloops Valley is where I'm from, we went out a week early, just yeah. like um, the public system in our district. And we care for our kids. They're like family. And the, um, we've been working, as soon as we found out that the school system wasn't going back, we got together as a staff and started organizing and talking and meeting by uh, virtual meetings to decide on how we were going to do this. And the time and energy that had to go in beforehand so that this was done right had to be done. And, oh, my God, the liberal leader, his comments are so judgmental. And I thought that in this whole situation, partisan politics was supposed to be put away. Yeah, okay, so you're in an... Have you got online learning up and running now at your independent school? Yes, we do. Okay, but like you said, you had a weak head start with an earlier spring break, We had a weak head start, which is... Right, and that shouldn't be judged against the schools that went out a week later, because it has to be done properly. Okay, Susan, thank, hey, you for a good, thank you for a good call. And I, I appreciate the kind words there t- that you had as well. Um, we're out of time, but Stephanie, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Anytime. You bet. That is Stephanie Higginson. She is the president of the BC School Trustees Association. Yeah, the human drama of athletic competition, the agony of defeat, the thrill of victory. I wonder when are we ever going to see sports on TV again? Like if you are a sports fan, and I'm a sports fan, you know, this is one of the things that we miss is all the sports leagues being shut down, all the major events around the world being shut down. 
Let's talk about that now. Let's talk about spectator sports, uh, the, the current situation with the pandemic. And will it ever come back and be the same as it was before? We have assembled an awesome panel for you to talk about this. Aileen McManaman is here. She is the founder and managing partner of the 5T Sports Group. She's a consultant to professional sports leagues and teams. Aileen, that's a very cool job. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, also, it's Aileen, by the way. Eileen, oh, I beg your pardon. Yeah, no worries. And also on the line is Norman O'Reilly. He's the director of inter- the International Institute for Sport, Business, and Leadership at the University of Guelph. Norm, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys, to both of you. Norm, let me go to you first. What is your sort of analysis of the of the current situation with with sports, and I guess not just professional sports, but local sports here as well with this pandemic? Yeah, as you can imagine, we've been looking at this very closely, and. I mean, in pro sport, has certainly been hit very hard, as you kind of talked about in your intro. There's nothing on TV. The leagues have postponed. There's cancellations. But uh, anything below that, our community-level sport, our junior sport, sport participation has been absolutely decimated. I mean, coaches can't run their programs. Pools are closed. Gyms are closed. Soccer clubs can't talk to people. It's really been, uh, in my 25-plus years as an athlete and also working in the field, it's been the the biggest hit to the industry I think we've ever seen. Yeah, it's absolutely brutal. Eileen, what do you think? Uh, yeah, it is, uh, as Norm said, it's it's really, really significant. Um, you know, uh, coming from the Olympic side, which is not where I spend most of my time, but I think it's something like 70% of the federations depend on IOC money. Um, we saw rugby was already struggling before this happened, and this is really uh, an impact in that community, which again is a global community, um, really reliant on those interconnections for their competition. But certainly things like minor league baseball, um, and as Norm mentions, things like community level sport, all those coaches, um, yeah, sure, we have a lot of volunteers, but, um, you know, yeah. there, there's a lot going on there. And, oh, yes. and don't forget all the people that supply them, the equipment manufacturers and the facilities. It's just devastating. And Norm, is there any way to put a monetary figure on this and how much sort of economic business damage this is inflicting? Yeah, I mean, everyone's asking that same question. You've seen a, a few things out there. So we're, we're starting to look at it analytically. And it's the big question there, the mystery kind of is, you know, when will live events and even seeing some talk now of some of the leagues trying, you know, without fans or, you know, the UFC doing stuff off a of reserve and all these kind of things are out there. But postponements in most cases can mean just means just a delay in the cost and maybe some short-term hits. The cancellations are obviously the biggest hits, but we're yeah. we don't we don't have those numbers yet till we kind of know at the end, and then they would be estimates. But you're you're going to be talking about numbers in the hundreds of millions, if not billions, oh, yeah. very very soon as postponements turn to cancellations. But if 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 we talk to let's say in a month, and that's I think that's a very wishful thinking from almost anyone's perspective. But if things started to open up a month from now and you had playoffs in the summer and leagues and junior stuff could start up again for September in a normal way, it could be managed reasonably and probably in most cases be handled. If we get much beyond that, we're talking about huge hits. Yeah, I think no I, I mean I I think as a, as a fan, I would love to see something like that happen. I think that looks kind of optimistic at this point. But you mentioned. Um, the UFC, so Ultimate Fighting Championships, and guys, have a listen to this. This is uh, Dana White. He is the he runs the UFC Fighting League, and here he is talking about his determination to get back up and running with pay per view fight cards, and even talking about running this on a private island. Dana White, we're going to be pumping out fights every week. Wow. I am also I'm a day or two away from securing a private island i have a private island that i've secured we're getting the infrastructure put in now so i'm going to start doing the international fights too with international fighters because i won't be able to get international fighters all of them into the u.s so i have a private island i'm going to start flying them all into the private island and doing international fights from there so as of april 18th the ufc is back up and running okay as dana white a private island to run these UFC fight cards. Eileen, does this does this sound real? I mean, can he can he do this? Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of factors around the can. Can it be done? Is he doing that because uh, there won't be restrictions on bringing people in? Potentially, 
Um, uh, you know, but is it the right thing to do? Well, was yeah. it the right thing for Jeffrey Epstein to do to bring to the private island for some very, um, you know, ill-advised behavior? Think about these fighters. Now, many of them really do have a bit of a reckless disregard, but also a, um, a you know, a, an honoring of their bodies. But so they get injured. Does that private island also have the the appropriate um, facilities to take care of whatever injury they might mm. suffer, and especially if it's life threatening? Right. And no, that's the best use of those resources of it's that a good private point. island. I think it opens up kind of an unethical debate as well, because what this guy is talking about is putting on these UFC fight pay per view fight cards on this island, and he would be testing. Everybody, all the athletes, all the officials, the judges, the the TV production people, there would be no fans. Like this would all be done with no fans in the audience. So it would just be the main, the the, the opponent, the the combatants in the ring, and all the officials to make it happen. But he would test everybody to make sure they're not positive for COVID nineteen. I wonder, I, Norm, do you think that? Like, I wonder if that raises an ethical consideration during a global pandemic. If this guy is able to secure test kits for COVID in order to do a, a fight card. Yeah, I mean, I think I outlined the, uh, the issues very clearly, and maybe UFC could pull it off. But if you got to ethics, then you could even put like a slash brand. And so it would be really interesting um, to see how people would respond. Like, would fans be, oh, my God, I finally got something to watch? Yeah. Would it be like, wow, this guy is, doesn't care about the world. It doesn't care about... Two percent of the world's population could potentially, you know, be be gone because of this horrible virus, and it could completely backlash on them. And that way, with the fighters boycott, you saw the tennis players get together. Now they don't have the same level of unions in, in UFC as they do in some of the other sports. But the players get together, the athletes, and say, "Hey, we're not going to participate." I mean, there's so many levels of of risk. Uh, UFC's kind of lived, uh, as Eileen pointed out, on that risk and on that edge, and the athletes maybe fit there. Maybe it's something that they could handle the brand better than other sports, but yeah. yeah, ethically over the line and a risk to your brand, but also a potential reward if it ever, all of a sudden, you had these huge audiences watching well, and people are desperate for stuff. So, Well, I, I think it would have a huge audience. Eileen, what do you think? I mean, people are probably desperate to watch something, and if a UFC fight card was coming on, even if you were not a big fan, you might tune in. Oh, you know, uh, certainly. I'm not sure if you're not a big fan. You might. Well, I suppose there's that case. But yeah, again, they're they have less risk to their brand because of what their brand is than than let's say our traditional stick and ball sports where we've got our yeah. mainstream sports fans. Well, what about but, what about baseball though? Because you got Major League Baseball saying, well, maybe we can pull this off in Arizona. Like if we bring all the Major League Baseball teams down there and basically create kind of a biodome where you know they bring all these players in and test them and, and again play games with no fans in the stands. I mean Major League Baseball's talking about that. Do you think it's possible Eileen for them to pull that off? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me about baseball cuz that is in my wheelhouse more than USC. Yeah. <laughs> but um you know again they're asking basically you would have to test all the players. You'd have to you'd have to uh, do that regularly. Uh, right. You're asking the players to also put stadium personnel at some risk. All of those folks would need to be tested um, at a point where we don't have reliable testing for, for just even even people who are presenting symptoms can't get tested tested right now. I don't think that's going to change in, in six weeks. Um, you know, it'll improve, but it's not going to change. Um, and baseball players and the, the brand of baseball is very different very community-oriented, not inclined to do something with their brand that risks that perception. And they're on a bit of a risk as it is, um, you know, their their attendance has been declining for 12 years steadily. Uh, so there's that. Um, and again, you come back to risk of injury. Uh, so if there is an injury, then they have to go into a hospital uh, system, potentially, that's already at the at the brink of its possibility. Okay. Um, and you've got decontamination of facilities issues that need to be addressed as well. Yeah, I mean, the this is a, a tough thing to pull off, but with so much money on the line, I, I wonder if they might try to do it. Here's what I'm going to do, guys. I want to take a quick break and come back, and then we'll continue our discussion. But I want to I want to play this real quick. This is you guys. I think will enjoy this because this is a discussion on ESPN with uh, reporter Jeff Passan, and they're talking about this plan here 
for Major League Baseball to start up with no fans in the stands and playing down in Arizona and testing everybody constantly for COVID-19? Is this thing even possible? And you'll hear the host here say that he doesn't think players will go along with it, but listen to how the reporter responds to him. I can't possibly see any player saying, yeah, sure, I'll go sequester myself in a biodome for four and a half months to play baseball and I'll see my family. There's no way in hell I can see that. But just going back to your initial point and the possibility that may, maybe more likely. Can, can I, oh, hold please, on, can I, can please. I, can I actually, can I actually, I want to, I, I want to offer you an anecdote actually. Please. Because, you know, I, I, I started hearing about this, uh, recently and, and I wanted to run it by a couple of players. And I ran it by a player last night. And when I ran up by this player, he said, exactly. I mean, almost word for word, Scott, what you said right there. And then this morning, he sent me a text. And he said, talked it over with my wife. She said, if it means getting paid, I can do the four and a half months. Hey, Norm, just before we go quickly to a call here, I, I, what is your take on Major League Baseball and this idea of running, running games with no fans in the stands in Arizona? Like, is this even possible? They would need to test so many people. And I mean, Arizona for four months would be like over 100 degrees out there in the heat. Like, is, is, do you think this is possible? I mean, I think Eileen outlined the, the challenges. Uh, but you could be darn sure. And she also mentioned baseball is a sport that's been on the decline in terms of its numbers and viewers and stuff. And they must be just, you know, looking at the opportunity that's in front of them to get back in front of former fans or to potentially yeah. get new fans. I mean, all the sports are looking at this. Yeah, the, the 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 if they ever got the union on side and you gave the the anecdote of the player, um, then you might say, well, this is possible, and they could start to investigate how you could even get people there and do it in a safe way. And to our point in the previous question, without destroying their brand and being unethical yeah. and, and and hurting, if they ever if they ever took the risk of passing the virus because of them doing this and someone else died from it, oh. then you're into a legal nightmare. So you can imagine what their lawyers would say. So it, you can be sure they're investigating every avenue, but it would be really, really tough to do in the short term. That's yeah, sure. I, I think, though, people would watch if they did pull it off. And maybe some yeah. people oh, might yeah. say, why would you even have sports during a crisis like this? But, hey, if you check your history books, I, I believe it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the Second World War said, don't shut down baseball because America needed some sort of distraction from all the hardships. Let's go to the phone calls. Roberto on the open line. Hi. Hi, Mike. Hi, go ahead. Hey, morning. Yeah, um, in regards to this uh, UFC kind of thing, like they uh, they got this private island. Yeah. Like for me myself, I'm a big fan for UFC. Every, like, like last year I went twice. To, uh, to the states just to watch the UFC. It's gonna be different within you just watching the TV while watching, you know, like in the in the real world, like inside the arena, right? Like you you can you can feel the goosebumps and everything. Like it's different while watching the TV. It's it's different. Yeah, but it's, would you watch different. it? Like if they did if they did these fight cards from this private island, would you would you buy the pay per view and watch it? For uh, this this time right now, but the pandemic, um, yeah. no. Why no. not? Um, I mean, myself, I have, I got two kids. Uh, I got my wife. You know, for for my safety and for my safety of my kids, you know, just to be safe, right? Well, you never, we never know. Okay, okay. Thank, thanks for the call. Uh, I, you know, look, I'm just saying, would he buy the pay per view? This is this is the thing I'm saying, Eileen. Is like, there's nothing else to watch. So I think if they did the pay per view, that people would buy it. And I just wonder if some other sports might follow suit if the UFC pulls this off. Like, would boxing be able to do it or golf or something like that? Like, sports where you have a limited number of participants and you could potentially test people and keep them safe. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Uh, the UFC fan, again, is a different is a different thing. And that's yeah. a different product televised without fans than many of our other sports. Um, but I would see things like golf or tennis being able to return more quickly. Yeah. Um, again, not great without spectators, but but for those who are who are avid fans, they do enjoy the televised product. And and again, I think that helps ease people psychologically back into sports is back. Um, Right, right. No, I agree with you. We just got a minute left here, Norm. What do you think of that? Because I think that I think some certain sports you might be able to ease them back in. Like Eileen said, like if you you know tennis, golf, something like that. I don't think you could do football. There are just too many people and too you know to to test. Well, I think there's a couple things that are really interesting, and, and I know a lot of the leagues are looking at this kind of stuff. Is can you 
create some kind of digital version or innovation like the NBA is doing, really pushing with their 2KL eSports League, where you take geography out of it. You start to transition longer term towards venues that have less people in them. We've already seen MLS do that. The NFL starts to do that. You play to smaller venues and start moving. So that's not going to solve the problem overnight. But you start moving towards the TV audience. I mean, UFC is a great example, as you pointed out. I mean, the vast majority of the revenues come not from the people watching, but from the people you know doing the pay-per-view or if it's other sports on cable packages or streaming, et cetera. So hopefully this is going to lead. We'll look back and say this is a horrible virus, but it led to some innovation. But short term, I think you're bang on. Like anything with a big audience and lots of travel is going to be tough. But you have something where okay. people, the athletes happen to be in the same area. Can you pull it off? All right, welcome back. Let's continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. It's the story of our lives. It impacts so many aspects of our lives. If you are a condo owner, maybe you own a condo, maybe you rent a condo, maybe you're part of a strata council, how does the COVID-19 impact or the, uh, the pandemic affect you in terms of your strata fees? Are you going to get a break on those? What about strata council meetings in the era of social and physical distancing? Remember that the condos were already being battered by those soaring insurance rates. This is like a double whammy for the condo sector. How does the pandemic impact that? Got the best guest on it for you, Tony Giaventu. He is the head of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. Tony, it's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, you too, Mike. How are you this afternoon? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. How are you guys doing in the condo business? Uh, well, I'll tell you, it's a little bit of mayhem. It's incredibly busy. It's expensive and costly for everyone, especially on the insurance front. But all of the other accommodations that are having to be made is a pretty big disruption in everybody's business, for sure. What are the major impacts of COVID-19 for condo owners, strata council, strata fees, everything to do with it? I think the biggest challenge that most of the strata communities are having is that a lot of them in the springtime schedule their annual general meetings to approve their budget, elect their council, and this year more than any because budget approvals are really hinging on um, the increases in insurance costs. Um, there, It's important to have them. The difficulty with it is is the um, cease assembly orders that we have and the isolation orders under the emergency procedures um, have pretty much prohibited um, or prevented any corporations from having any collective meetings. Uh, so they, um, uh, so they, it, so really what they're down to now is strata corporations are either kind of delaying their annual meeting and hopefully they have enough money in their reserves to pay their bills and their insurance before their um, time comes due, or what they're looking at is alternatives for meetings. And there's, there's some alternatives that already exist under the Act. But, you know, so everyone's having to shift how they're doing business when it comes to general meetings. Yeah, right. You can't have an in-person meeting anymore. I mean, this thing has just turned our lives upside down. So is it possible to have a, a condo, a, a strata corporation meeting um, online through Facebook Live? I mean, I don't know what other options are out there. <laughs> uh, well, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom is, a, yeah, is a pretty Zoom. good option for, right. for meetings, and um, and many of us are using it. Uh, it, um, it, it, but the the difficulties of, of any type of online system is there's kind of a critical capacity where it just becomes unmanageable. Yeah. Uh, you know, for stratas that are 25 units or less for your monthly council meetings. Um, for a you know smaller strata corporation, this works really well. You know who the people are. You can manage it. It doesn't take a lot of time to let people into the room to be able to participate. Uh, but if you have a strata of 150 or 250 units, it's absolute mayhem to try and do this online. Um, it's it's almost impossible to accurately register people, to respect people's voting rights, to be able to recognize the right people voting for the right units. Um, it's incredibly complicated to do this in an online system, and the technology really isn't quite there yet um, to make it easy. But there is an alternative. Um, strata corporations can do a meeting what to by what we call a restricted proxy, and it's a it's a conventional meeting. There's still a meeting held. Um, it's probably held by just one or two council members. Um, those council members will represent everyone's votes. And why we call it a restricted proxy is because under the Strata Property Act, owners have the right 
to limit and impose instructions on their proxies. So if you, when the property manager sends out a notice or the council sends out a notice, they can attach a restricted proxy that says, basically, we will not alter your vote and we will vote according to your instructions. And so the people who are managing the meeting will basically implement the, the instructions on those it has a few limitations. You, you're probably not going to be able to do amendments unless you've had an advanced information meeting for people to be able to, you know, consider amendments and put those instructions on their proxies. But it will meet the requirements of the Act, and it will ensure that everyone's voting rights are respected, their voting instructions are upheld and adhered to, um, and that the strata can continue on with relatively routine, normal business. Okay, this is tricky stuff to try and pull this off when you're talking about a large strata corporation, like you said, but this is the law, though, right? I mean, the Strata Property Act is the law of the land. I mean, you have to have a meeting of some kind, correct? You do, and you do yeah. have to have an annual meeting. And, and with the with the rate of insurance increases, you're prob- the strata's are probably wanting to have it sooner than later because they're going to have to increase condo fees. What a horrible time to be increasing the, stri- the fees oh. for our condominiums and for our stratas, right? Um, you know, the other side of that, it leads into the next part, though, is that, you know, we're now starting to see people who have a bit of a crunch because they're unemployed suddenly. Do they keep pay- paying strata fees or can the strata corporation defer their strata fees? And they, the reality is they can't. The Strata Corporation doesn't have the authority to defer fees because the Strata Corporation is basically the household of all of the owners. So it needs to keep paying for things like gas and electric and waste management and insurance and, you know, and the um, uh, routine servicing that's required under all of our building safety systems. So, you know, there, there isn't a lot, there isn't a lot of wiggle room in most of these budgets. They're pretty bare bones to start with. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, oh, we're, you know, like this best, is like the perfect hope it doesn't go on too long, right? Oh, this is like the perfect storm. I mean, this is brutal because you were already dealing with the soaring insurance rates that we've talked about and people know about. Now suddenly this thing hits. What if someone like if someone's lost their job like you said, what if they can't pay their fees? What happens? Uh, well, I think strata corporations, uh, we've, we've been looking at a number of corporations in different sizes in different regions of the province. Many strata corporations can probably manage their cash flows, even if they have about 20% of the owners um, who are going to be late in paying their fees for the next, you know, three to six months. They probably can manage that. It's probably a, a margin of error, but... If the insurance has just gone up 300% and they've had to use their contingency fund uh, to pay for the insurance in the short term because they have a cash flow issue, they might not have any additional funds to be able to absorb those delinquencies. So that's, that's where it's going to get a little dodgy for some of the strata corporations. But there isn't really any relief in, in, in place because um, uh, the relief has been granted to individuals in the form of um, compensation, you know, for work loss or work shortage. Right. Um, it's not being granted to the corporation. So it's, and strata corporations don't pay GST, so there's no GST rebate or anything to be considered there. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty tight on their budgets already. I, I was going to say one of the things that we're really seeing the symptom of here is, is we really do have insufficient funding for most of the strata corporations in BC because they haven't been funding long-term um, renewals of buildings. So they don't have very large reserves to be able to have a buffer when, when emergencies like this happen. Okay, speaking of Tony Gioventu from the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC, just before we take a break, Tony, and then we'll get some phone calls going. This pandemic hits while you guys were already dealing with the insurance crisis. What is the latest on that? Like, how much are insurance rates going up? Has there been any relief at all? What are you hearing from government? Because I know government had indicated, well, maybe we can do something. What's what's going on there? Uh, so lots of discussions around what possible options might be, but no real solutions yet. Um, the insurance is still, for the most part, we're seeing the same increases that we saw in pretty much December, January, February. Um, how much? Anywhere- how much are the increases? Anywhere from two to four hundred percent. You know, we're seeing that we're seeing massive increases in deductibles. Uh, you know, the other side of it is that the insurance industry has also been hit by the COVID crisis, so the pressure on them is even harder now. So that's not making this any easier to see the the industry lightening up. So it's um, yeah, no one has a magic answer yet. <laughs> 